Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Maximilian Roust is the co-founder of CLAR, a single-source truth for e-commerce brands. Focused on SME e-commerce companies, CLAR combines their data to help them track performance, scale growth, and increase profitability. Previously, Max was CMO at Y Foods, a 100 million plus euro revenue DTC brand, Autonova, a digital private health insurance company with over 100 million uh, euro raised, and Jumia South Africa, which was listed on the New York Stock Exchange. Max, welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Hi, thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, so so Max, you know, obviously um, you've been through uh, capital raising in previous companies or a previous company and your current company, and I want to get into that decision to raise capital and what it allowed you to do and the uh, you know benefits and detriments. But before we go to all that, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe <laughs> 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because uh, I don't know, you know, running an e-commerce. Uh, you know, funded company might not have been it at that age, but you tell me. <laughs> uh, so I think going a bit even earlier than that, I wanted to, like, I think every kid wanted to be like a professional athlete. You know, that was, that was, uh, <laughs> the, and being uh, from, from, from Germany, you know, that was uh, football or soccer um, back then. When I got a bit older, kind of, it, I realized, even though I was talented, I was not that talented that, okay, maybe uh, it's not a, career so then it shifted from that i wanted to be like a, a sports journalist so it kind of evolved uh, also quite uh this is a guy from the u.s Boj, uh, adrian wojanowski and he has i think the greatest job title ever his name is uh his title is a senior mba insider and i'm still kind of quite jealous of this title because i think it's the like, most awesome sounding job title ever <laughs> and yeah from there it kind of went into being like a creative agency and from that, I kind of then figured out uh, once I was in business school, maybe just start with consulting and see where it takes you. And I kind of like stumbled uh, from then into like e-commerce and then kind of just stayed. Love it. Um, and one other question looking back, what was your first deal of any type you can think of? It could have been something small when you were a kid or early in your career, whatever comes to mind. Man, it was probably some sort of negotiating with my with my with my parents happening. I mean, we were like, uh, <laughs> we were three uh, brothers three young boys and uh, we obviously uh well we're always up to no good most of the time and always trying to to you know get our way out of out of out of trouble and trying to negotiate uh, something that we could live with or uh, reducing the amount of course that uh, we had to do around the house <laughs> there you go i love it i love it we just chose negotiation successful <laughs> ah, well i guess it was a give and take you know <laughs> i love it i love it okay so 
let's, you know, obviously we gave it at a high level in your bio, but just give us a couple more minutes on exactly what your, you know, your current company does, who you serve, who you, who you focus on. Yeah, you know, you mentioned I was at quite a few companies before, always running marketing, mostly in e-commerce companies, and uh, especially at my previous company, uh, we were growing quite rapidly after fundraise, and I was kind of looking for a tool that pulls together all the data and helps me analyze it in a way that, you know, is meaningful to me and helps me really understand how the business works and what it is working and what isn't working. And looked at a bunch of things, didn't really find anything that met my expectations. So figured, you know, that might be a good opportunity. Started speaking to other founders in the space and they're all kind of struggling with the same thing, doing most of their reporting in spreadsheets or some data studio reports because they're still not big enough yet to have their own fully fledged BI team. Yep. And so, yeah, that's uh, how the idea was born. Started working with my two co-founders on that who are both like previously CTOs of large teams and the first year was just the three of us, you know, building everything uh, in private in like a close beta. And yeah, did a fundraise now for that company recently officially launched. And we kind of, like you said, want to be the single source of truth for e-commerce company that pulls together all their data. And we kind of like optimize for five things, which is kind of everything you need, but because we're so specific on like the specific niche of e-com brands doing like, one to 20 million in revenue, I think we can actually be pretty good at all of them because, you know, you want to have something that's, you know, quick to set up because you don't really have much time. You want to have something that's uh, easy to maintain. You know, they don't want to spend a bunch of time. You don't have a team to maintain something. It kind of needs to be super low maintenance. You want to have something that's affordable. Obviously you can't spend a lot and you obviously want to get really deep into your data and be able to slice and dice this the way you need it. And to allow you to do that, you need to be able to, you know, customize things. And I think that's one of the things that sets us apart is really understanding, you know, the ways how e-com businesses differ and having like a very simple way of customizing and adjusting their data to reflect their reality, you know, because most of these plug and play one size fits all tools, they are mostly just directionally correct because you can't adjust it. They're not flexible enough to adjust them in the right places. And I think we put quite a lot of emphasis on understanding where flexibility is needed and creating an interface that allows you to like quickly just adjust the things to the way you need them. Yeah, that's great. I mean, so often, right, you find, right, the two extremes, right? You've got big companies who either have an internal custom solution or they work with external solutions that are very customizable, right? You know, and they and they pay a lot of money, you know, for that ability yep. to right to to tailor and customize and whatever. Even if they're starting with some, you know, some enterprise level, you know, based software. Yep. But uh, or there's these off the shelf, you know, lower end products. But that's always the challenge, right? Is that you know the amount you can customize. I mean, you know, maybe you got a couple of toggles on, you know, on a couple of things. But but you know, for the most part, they're not that customizable, and and it's it's rare to see something that's sort of in between, right? Still still fits. And that. it's obviously, you know, it's obviously, you know, just saying that is obviously, hey, that's ideal for everyone. And you can only really accomplish that by really being really specific. You know, um, you need to have a very specific niche. And if you have that, you can you can accomplish that. If you try to do it from everyone, it's like I think it's impossible. You know, it's yeah. just it's just not it's just there's too many, too many options. There's also, you know, problems with those ERPs, like ERP systems often times they just try to cover everything and they just because there's also lots of potential complexity and you just get to a point where these things are just not usable anymore um, just because, um, yeah, there's too much they're trying to cover. Yeah, it's interesting. I think about it even to my, you know, relatively small law firm, 
you know, on the one hand, we're on a Salesforce enterprise platform for a lot of what we do, which is, you know, Salesforce, um, they, they always say to say, you know, the great thing and the horrible thing about Salesforce is that you can do anything with it, but you know, you gotta, <laughs> but, but, but you gotta customize it. But there's, there's something called Avalogix, which is a law firm overlay on essential, mm -hmm. uh, you know, on a, uh, you know, so, so in other words, it creates an overlay that actually makes it more specific. But even with that, we have a consultant that we pay to customize that to us because even, you know, general, like there are all kinds of different law firms, mm -hmm. right? So they have things on settling cases we don't litigate, right? So I get, you know, I, I get it as a microcosm in terms of what we do and, and I could only yeah. imagine for, you know, and we're not even an e-commerce company, right? We have a lot less going on. Um, yeah. So yeah, to have that in between abilities, great. All right, so let's, you know, in terms of the deal aspects of, uh, you know, what this podcast is about, you know, let's go back. I mean, let's talk about the Capital Ways and your prior company. First of all, were you, I mean, obviously we'll get to the one for your current company, which I know you were very involved in. Were you that involved in the raise itself? I know you were very involved with what the company was able to do with the capital <laughs> that was raised in the last company, but were you involved with the raise itself? Um, so I was, I was, I was a stakeholder, you know, I was in those meetings. I always was the guy to present the marketing slides and answer the marketing questions. Uh, yeah. I was not the primary person driving it until my recent, like my, my current company where I like did the entire process. But prior to that, I was, you know, um, the marketing person and yeah. uh, one of the people in the process. Yeah. So, so that's an interesting contrast, right? So, you know, you're a stakeholder in your prior company, but you don't have control over the decision-making. Um, you have input into, you know, what the use of proceeds is going to be, what you, how you can leverage the, the fundraise, you know, and then obviously now it's a very different scenario. So let's talk about it from that point of view, from, from the prior company point of view as a stakeholder, right? So what's the, what's the process like for you? And most people think raising capital is always good and there's a lot of great things you can do with it. And I want to hear about what you were able and your, you know, and, and the folks you work with were able to leverage with that capital raise in the last company. Uh, you know, but also I know, you know, from experience working with clients and people I've found as guests wherever, you know, there's some sometimes some negatives, uh, you know, especially in sort of your position, right? You know, it creates some expectations and of growth and the private equity of VC money is looking for returns. And so, you know, why don't you, you know, I'm just setting a stage, you know, let's talk about the positive side. Let's talk about what it enabled your prior company to do, you know, that you wouldn't have been able to do in terms of, you know, yeah. having the level of funding first. Yeah, I mean, so um, the one company, Autonova, you know, uh, the private health insurance company, we literally could have not built that company without funding because obviously it's an ex extremely regulated market. Uh, there has not been a new entry in that market for 40 years prior to that company because just the, uh, the barriers of entry are so high. So like you could not have built that company without funding because by the time we had launched, you know, we already were 55 people we had raised like 40 million at that point, not having generated a single like euro or dollar of revenue, right. just because, you know, you need to build a health insurance. You can't just say, okay, let's just, uh, you know, do a bit of health insurance and then we'll like figure it out along the way. Like health is important. You can't just, you know, eyeball it. Yeah. Um, so that was important. And also obviously there were um, requirements by the uh, regulator, you know, in terms of how much capital you needed to have. So that company, yeah like I said, would have been virtually impossible to build without. And then the company where I was before Y-Food uh, would just like a drinkable meal, essentially like a, like a drink that contains like all the nutrients, macro, micronutrients that your, that your body needs. And that company was already working extremely well when I got there, but then we kind of like really accelerated after the launch and 
that's essentially what it allowed us to do. You know, um, the company was working well. It was profitable-ish, you know, one month, yes, one month, maybe no. But it was basically not that we needed it to fund our losses. You know, we just needed it to make additional strategic investments. And having raised that capital allowed us to move much, much quicker. So I think the initial roadmap even already, you know, knowing that we were going to raise capital was kind of rolling out internationally because at that point in time, the business was mostly based in like the German speaking markets in Europe was to uh, roll out over the course, I think of 12 or 18 months or something like that. But then we just said, you know, why not do it all in like three, like three to four months? You know, what is, what is, what is really stopping us from that? And just the level of learning you get is, so much higher and so much quicker. So why should we postpone this learning over a year, a year and a half, if we can get the same learning in like six months? And you know, it's going to be a bit more wasteful. Level of learning might not be on the same level if you do it all separate from each other, but but you know you can start to compound those learnings over time so that the way you get to after two years is going to be that much further. Yeah, you know, it's great to give those two examples because it really hits on, I think, two of the major reasons why it makes sense for certain companies to raise capital. One is, as you said, there are certain companies that could not exist, could not, you know, unless they raise capital. I mean, they're just in, you know, in industries where the, you know, the infrastructure, whether it's physical infrastructure or online infrastructure, where the, you know, you mentioned regulatory, you know, there's a lot of reasons why there's a significant capital investment need to build something that even becomes, you know, uh, viable as opposed to in some other industries where they, the whole concept is you get a, you know, an MVP, a minimal, minimally viable product and you, and you put it out to the marketplace and you get feedback and you start, you know, um, certain businesses just can't do that, right? You know, you're not gonna, mm-hmm. if you are a, you know, at a pharmaceutical company, if you are, a, right, a lot of stuff in the health field, a lot of whatever, right? You know, you need significant investment to go through product development, testing, government approvals, all that kind of stuff. So that's one scenario. The other scenario is exactly the one you give where you have a company that, you know, might do okay organically, but the intention is to scale it and grow it much more quickly. You know, there could be a lot of reasons for that, right? Competitors in the marketplace to gain market share, just the desire to grow more quickly, opportunities you can take take advantage of that you wouldn't be able to funding it through cash flow. And, you know, the biggest thing there is that you accelerate growth, which accelerates enterprise value as well, right? Geographic growth, you mentioned, outside of the German-speaking market, you mentioned. So, you know, those are two wonderful examples of reasons you raise capital. And it sounds like, I don't know what ultimately happened with this, but it sounds like in both cases, at least initially, that fundraise achieved the objectives. Yeah, I mean, Dallas is still operating and running, so (laughs) still, still going good and strong. And yeah, I mean... We obviously were able to launch the health insurance and we were able to expand into all of those markets. So the goal was achieved. And yeah, I like this, uh, you, especially now that you're, you're sort of on the other side of things. So as a stakeholder, at some input, but not really control over those raises, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, talk to me a little bit about what are the negatives? Obviously, I know when money comes in, it changes companies. There's pressure to grow, to speed to market, move more quickly, develop things, have the marketing right. So talk to me as like somebody personally involved in that situation. On, did that create additional pressures? You know, where, like what was the experience of that? Of course it does, you know, uh, 100%. I mean, everybody who says it doesn't is just plainly lying, I think. I mean, unless your company is 
just everything is happening kind of like automatically almost and you're just like at the right place at the right time with the right product with the right everything and just things work but that's like a one in a million you know you're saying, might... almost no company ever almost exactly so like maybe there are a few rare exceptions where you know it just works but in most cases it's just uh, a struggle and um with the second company y food you know it was still a lot of work we did, but overall the product, the pricing, the market it was right. It just, it worked really well. Whereas, um, so we just like kind of just really pushing it, pushing it, pushing it, trying to like maximize really this opportunity that we have. And that was a lot of work, but there was, we were never really in the point of time where we had that much external pressure even after the race because just it worked, you know? Right. And um, they were just like encouraging us to almost push harder. And then the health insurance business, you know, it was a really tough start because especially for health insurance, so the German market is like a dual system. You have like public and private um, and everybody needs to have insurance, but only a few people actually can get private insurance. So it's a very complicated market, especially for the private health insurance. There's very much a mixed understanding, like a not really good understanding of how it works and what it is. Plus then for insurance, Trust is really important, you know, and you don't really trust like a young company because it's also not so easy to switch between insurers later. And I always said like, you know, we we are not like a uh, hundred years old like other insurance companies. And it's also a fact we can't change in the next hundred years. Um, so that was a real struggle to really understand, okay, what do we have to do in the first months to really win customers over and convince customers to join us. And that was uh, together with the fact that we had raised so much money before launch, you know, it was a tremendous pressure on the whole organization. I think especially, you know, my my team to uh, bring in customers and we really only, you know, um, it took us quite a bit of time. Um, the first kind of breakthrough actually came through also an additional product offering where we targeted specifically the expert market in Germany with. So basically, mm-hmm people coming in as experts because, well, one, they don't have all these wrong impressions of private health insurance. Plus, then also the downsides of private health insurance don't really affect them so much because they're planning on leaving in a few years anyway. And that was a good first market for us to get into and gave us a bit of breathing room to kind of like, you know, start, build the rest of the business, um, you know, solidly. And and in both cases, was there... um... You know, post raising money, was was there some clear expectations that were, uh, you know, like targets and things like that that were tied into, you know, to the capital raise and you know, expectations and were there expressed as expectations sure. of the money? I mean, you like you know, yeah. I mean, you always have a business plan that you can like, put forward, uh, and depending on the maturity of the company, you know, there's more or less expectations of hitting that business plan. I think you know, if you're very much early. Like we were with the health insurance business or also now with my own company. It's just basically understanding kind of like the model and like what kind of rough alignment of expectations of where this company ought to be going. Um, but then if you're at the later stage, you know, the, the, the focus you put forward is very much targets you should be should be reaching. Um, so, yeah, it really depends. There always are targets, um, but at the beginning, it's more best like a rough direction. And if you race later, it's going to like very much clear targets that you have to reach. And then also you get new targets approved annually by your investors. Um, and then those kind of count, you know. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. 
It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. All right, so let's move to your current company. So we talked about, you know, uh, based upon the examples of the prior couple of companies, a couple of the main reasons why companies raise money, you know, one is this sort of pre-launch, you know, necessity to uh, the kind of company that could never launch unless it built, you know, had funding to build what it was building originally. And the other is to, you know, is, is a situation where the company is operating, but now, you know, there's a growth accelerant. What, what's the reason why you raise capital, uh, you know, and, 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 and are you planning on raising more? Well, let's start with what's the reason why you raise capital in your current company? What's, what's the motivation behind that? Because we see it worked. You know, we saw there was interest, there was clear market demand for what we were building. And um, we could have bootstrapped, you know, ourselves, but it's only, I mean, we essentially just saw an opportunity. There was a need in the market and we kind of just figured it would be a shame to not move quickly enough and someone else comes in and, you know, takes that market. Um, and that was kind of like the main motivation. It was a market need uh, that we could exploit and um, in order to, you know, increase our chances of exploiting that opportunity, we said the best way to get there is, you know, um, get more people on the team, um, be unprofitable for a while. Um, that's why we did it. Yeah. No, it makes sense. I mean, we talked about that second reason the prior company, you know, speed to market or increase acceleration. Mm-hmm. You know, and speed were part of it. In this case, you know, it's a, a specific aspect of that of speed to market, right? So that, you know, you get out there before the competitors. Uh, so it totally makes sense. Obviously, you'll only share what you're comfortable sharing. But, you know, anything you want to share about the particular raise in terms of what it looked like and who, you know, was this an, an angel round? Was this a an A round? Yeah. Like- I mean, I think it's always difficult to kind of, you know, what these rounds are called these days. It's always right, a little right, bit right, difficult. Right. <laughs> so, but we, we, we call it a seed stage round and uh, we have one institutional investor called Cherry Ventures, which is one of the, I don't know, let's call it top three seed, like leading seed stage funds in, in, in Europe. So like we like uh, A-level on this side and they did the majority of the round. But then we also got like around a dozen angels that participated and they are all basically founders that also either operate e-commerce companies or operate companies that that serve e-commerce companies with like one or two small exceptions. So there's some strategic value there, you know, and at least in terms of- Yeah, we basically just, we basically just pick our angels based on, you know, is this someone who I can see myself giving a call every week or every other month in the future to help me grow the business, you know, because it wasn't about the money. It was, we could have just asked the VC to give us more uh, or could have just asked anyone else to give us money because we do, me and my co-founders, we do have quite a bit of experience and like a pretty good track record. So raising money from anyone wasn't really the concern or question is, can you get the money from the right people? Yeah. Yeah. That's strategic, you know, and it's great to be in that position where you've got, you know, that, that ability to, you know, to bring in people strategically. So you, you just said something that's, you know, really interesting and not surprising where, you know, you and your co-founders have a track history, right? You know, you've been at other funded companies, you've made things happen. Other people I've talked to, and, you know, we always talk about this in the industry, people who have no in real involvement, you know, who are not sophisticated in this area, whatever, you know, always think it's all about the idea, right? That that's the the, the biggest thing, right? Yeah. And and the idea of the product, the service, or whatever. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. It certainly does. 
But I think they, you know, they generally underestimate the founders and our management team, you know, in the analysis of yeah. funders, right? So in your case, just talk about like, you know, your investors and how much they're looking at the management team versus, you know, this great idea that you have, right? I actually thought about this a bit. So I would say it's probably 60% team. It's 30% market, 10% idea or product. There we go. Right. Yeah. So um, they kind of like really try to understand, you know, who are you? What is your track record? What are you trying to build? Um, just in general, then how big is that market really? You I know, mean, obviously they have, they need to have massive returns because like, like nine out of 10 investments fail. So the one that hits needs to hit hard. So yes. how big is that potential market going to be? And then really, I mean, for us, we're super early. We did have a product, which is unlikely, unusual in that early stage already to be so far with the product like we were. But they also looked at the product and they asked some customers about the product and like, how do they like it? And that was kind of just like a final last, you know, checked almost to, to see how things are. Yeah, you know, it's fascinating. I love that 60% management, 30% market and 10%, you know, product. And, and that's only 10% product, even though you actually had, you know, some companies don't even have the level of product you had and the customer yeah. input you had, you know, and, and, and I definitely see that. Listen, we have listeners of this podcast that are, uh, you know, everything from sophisticated deal folks to folks who are just, you know, learning about deals. And I think if you probably, I've never seen this, but if you did it, you know, my, my unofficial uh, 30 years plus of doing this survey would be that, you know, the, the less sophisticated people are, if they don't know, they probably guessed that it was, you know, something like whatever, 70% product, 20% uh, uh, market and 10% management. And like, as they get more and more sophisticated, they understand those percentages totally shift. Um, yeah. So that, uh, you know, and, you know, one example I give folks is like, you know, pick anybody who's, you know, an Elon Musk or whoever, right? You know, uh, the Google guys or, you know, uh, Zuckerberg or whatever. You know, I say to them, listen, do you think if they went out and said they're starting a company to do anything, let's say they even said they're starting a company and they we won't even tell you what we're going to do. Do you think they'd get investment? You know, <laughs> yes. Yeah. yes, they would, you know. Um, yeah. So, I mean, um, it's crazy. You probably have the same in the US, but you, when you like register a company, you have a company registry and investors here, they are scraping those registry to kind of see when people found a new company. And then I think they have lists where they cross-reference the names with, you know, people with a profile that have done interesting stuff before. And then as soon as someone with like a, with a certain profile founds a new company, they reach out immediately, right? And say, hey, uh, we had messages um, saying, kind of saying, hey, we invest, you know, we invest pre-product in even pre-idea, right? We just saw you have a company, we want to invest. We don't care what you build, we know you're a good guy, we will we'll just invest. Right. And it's fascinating because it's interesting in the U.S., depending upon the state, there's actually a lot less information that's public than in, 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 mm. in most countries in Europe, for example. So it's very interesting. That, yeah, that uh, I'm not surprised they're scraping the public data there and reaching out. It just shows you how much management, you know, and, you know, and, and, success. and you know, things are probably a bit different now that the market cooled down a little bit in the last month or two. But I think like half a year, year ago, like things are crazy, like literally anybody could almost get money. Like if you had a somewhat decent team and a somewhat decent idea, you could you could raise around basically, you know? Yeah, you know, for, for, for many, for several years at least, I've been saying, you know, in this market, there's no good deal, uh, you know, and that's whether it's a startup company or even, you know, an acquisition or whatever, there's no good company or deal that's not fundable, right? And, and listen, we still have a lot of deals going on. We'll see what happens is, you know, with the market and what, and what happens, but certainly, you know, it's, 
it, it, it's an open question right now in my mind, but yeah, certainly the last few years. So let me ask something. So you're on the, you know, I remember, you know, when I worked for somebody many decades ago as a lawyer, uh, I had many, many opinions on what they were doing right and wrong in running, you know, the big law firms I worked at. And I knew I was going to go out on my own. And I did, you know, almost, 30, yeah, actually over 30 years ago. And um, uh, some of these things that I thought that I really understood that I wanted to do differently, I was right on. Like I really, we really is a different way to treat clients and employees and blah, blah, mm. blah. And then there were some things when I got to the other side that I sort of realized why, you know, I was like, oh, okay. Now I understand why they did it that way. And maybe, you know, uh, maybe uh, they were right, or maybe at least I have a, a deeper appreciation for why they made the decisions. So uh, I'm just drawing sort of an analogy. So for you sort of being at your prior two companies, a, a stakeholder, but not in control of the fundraising decision, and now, of course, raising money for your own company, where I know you have co-founders, but you know, but obviously mm. you would had major input and decision-making capability. Was there anything that you sort of had a view on in your prior positions that you've now, as the decision-maker, come to view a little differently? I think actually the guys who I've worked with in the past um, probably would have done quite similar to what we done now. I think, you know, what what is a bit maybe counterintuitive to maybe some is not really optimizing for the highest value or the highest valuation, especially early stage, it's quite short-sighted. I think like the investors look at people, uh, you also should look at the people because you are going to be spending a lot of time with these guys. You're going to be in calls with them every month at least to like talk about the business. Um, and like I say, you know, money is cool, you know, but also mm -hmm. money is money. It's like, it's, it doesn't really, uh, it's the same kind of if it comes from this person or that person, it doesn't really make a difference, but the value that that person can provide on top of the money, especially early stage is, um, I would say as important, but as an important factor that that should not be underestimated. And that's why we also went for this like mix of having like a really strong seat VC uh, uh, to bring in. Um, that's also like a signaling for, you know, potential later investors and then also getting in expertise from from our collection of, of angels. Yeah, so maybe a little deeper appreciation for who you raise money from. And that's great. And, and, and listen, this... Uh, you know, for the listeners, this thing about having that prior experience and that reputation and, you know, confidence in the management. And then, you know, you did what most companies that are really successful raising money is, right? You get a lead investor who's a significant player, right? You know, get them on board, somebody that, you know, you think you can work with, but, you know, that is, that is, that is some status, you know, and that usually, once you do that, that makes it a lot easier to raise capital from others. And in your case, it sounds like you had your choice from where else, you know, you're going to... Um, raise that money and you didn't even need to raise it because you could have gotten it all. You know, so, so that's, that's a great position to be in because then you can make strategic decisions amongst the people who are interested in, in funding. Yeah. And, you know, it's always, you know, it's, it's easy to say now being in that position, sending out all nice and well, I also know other people who, who, you know, had a much early in their career and maybe didn't had like the current hot topic of the minute that they were building and they had a much tougher time building or, raising, raising capital. And I guess, you know, that's just, you know, I'm, I'm still the youngest in our co-founding team, but I, all of us, we have like 12 to 20 years experience in like the venture funded space. And it's obviously like something you build yourself up over time. We had to, you know, pay our dues in different ways earlier. And now you maybe some, if you early in your career, you have to, and you're already raising capital now, which is amazing. Like I didn't have that 
confidence in myself like five years ago 10 years ago to start my own company and go out there like i could not have done that because i didn't have that confidence if you have that confidence it's great but um yeah you have to struggle in that way maybe now a little bit and i had to struggle in other ways early in my career so it's just you know a comfortable position to be in now uh we worked all really hard to to get there especially now working with many e-commerce brands who are often started by young entrepreneurs you know i'm always amazed when I just speak to guys who are like 22, 23, 25, who are doing like multiple millions in revenues per year. And, you know, just saw an opportunity went from it at the when he, at a very young age. And I think that's, that's amazing. And I always just said like, hey, I, I didn't have the guts to do that uh, when I was your age. Yeah, 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 no, it's definitely impressive. So, uh, you know, you call this a seed round, which would imply that you're that there are plans to uh, raise additional capital uh, going forward. Uh, is that is that uh, are you assuming that you're gonna you're gonna need to do that, or is that part of the funding plan going forward? Uh, I mean, let's say it's 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 on the table. You know, um, it's, you know, also the normal trajectory now would be to keep on raising, but I think especially in the market times right now, you don't want to be. And we didn't already want to be in a position in initially when the market was good that we had to raise, you know, and especially now you still want to be more flexible. Um, you don't just want to take a bad deal because you need money. Um, I think that's like a bad position to be in. Like we want to be flexible. And like I said before, if we see areas we want to invest in because we think they will pay off long-term and we'll need more capital to do so, then we'll raise and but like we want to be flexible and rate for the right partner at the right time at you know an overall deal that that we think is a good deal for us uh, short and long term. Sure. Yeah, it totally makes sense. And and you know if you're fortunate enough to be in a position not to have to raise, then you have those you know those luxuries, which are great. Okay. So um, before I ask you my final two questions, um, is there anything else you know in terms of uh, you know this uh, journey of raising capital or you know on the deal side that comes to mind that would be, you know, a good lesson or thing to watch out for, you know, and if not, we can go to last two questions, but you know, any last thought that might be useful for the listeners? So I think something we talked about before our race now for this company um, is that, yes, we talked about business plans and them early stage not being, you know, like hard targets, you said, but I mean, they're like directionally set expectations of where you want to go. And what I think is important, I mean, you obviously can try to optimize for valuation and like put on a crazy business plan that is just not even unrealistic. It's just impossible, you know? Um, you know, that will probably give you a higher valuation and maybe a bit more money you can play with. But at the same time, you know, you will basically have much more pressure and expectations from day one, which in turn will force you or push you to optimize more for the short term than for the mid or for the long term, yeah. which for the long term performance as well as the long term valuation of the company is in probably 95 out of 100 cases the worst option. Right? There obviously are these models that have and you know the right point in time and they just fly and just make sense to push, push, push early on and have some real targets that come up, will come together. But in most cases, I think. Um, being in a position where you can actually, you know, 70% of your energy can go into the mid or long term and like 30% the short term is for a long term valuation also the better option than being like 80% focused on the short term from the very beginning. Yeah, no, it's a great point. And listen, it really is an art between 
you know, on the one hand, you got to show projections that are exciting enough for somebody to show the returns for an investor that they'd be interested in. Because yeah, you know, if, if you're going to show you know fifteen percent growth the annual growth a year, you know, and and you know, like which for an organic you know non funding company might be very nice. You know, they're not going to get excited. On the other hand, not to overpromise because of the pressure. And, and listen, from a legal point of view, sometimes they put certain provisions in there with that trigger certain rights they have, you know, if you don't hit certain targets. So, yeah, so it's always interesting, you know, on, um, on how you present that. Yeah. Last, last word of advice, get good legal counsel. <laughs> <laughs> it's part of the game, people. Um, yeah. All right. So um, before I ask my last question, my second last question is, how can people find out more about your company? Where should they go to, to look? Yeah, so obviously our website is a great place to start. It's getklar.com, G-E-T-K-L-A-R.com. Um, and then also I'm quite active on LinkedIn, um, Maximilian Rust. Um, so yeah, regularly post uh, stuff there about e-com and uh, well, stuff I see from all the data that we're gathering from our customers, obviously uh, fully anonymized. <laughs> but yeah, those are the best places. Excellent. And folks, you know, as I always say, if you're driving or whatever, don't worry about it. It'll be in the show notes, um, you know, so you can check it out there. Um, Max, so my final question on the podcast is always about my highest ideal in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means everything uh, from freedom from all people in the world from oppression to why I haven't had a boss in decades and I, I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur. So uh, what does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? I think it's about... Um you know, really much going to bed at night and, and being being okay with yourself and like how 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 things are, the decision that you're making, that you're I'm not sure what the English translation for the morning is, but you're kind of like at peace with yourself, you know, uh, in a way. Um, you, you like what you're doing. Uh, you are okay with decisions that you make. You like the people you have around you. And obviously sometimes you do have the things you don't like so much and that's okay, that's part of life. But you know, if it's an ongoing, ongoing situation, then there's maybe something you want to change. Love it, Max. Thank you so much for bringing a great guest on the Deal Quest podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Deal Quest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the Deal Quest community. Join the Deal Quest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.